Well, that was Irving, our music director, asking those questions. He's the one that was leading today while Derek's on sabbatical for six weeks. We've got some other people leading. And a couple of things I learned about Irving today. One is that he's a really good worship leader. The second thing is he's very concerned about robots taking over the future. <laughs> Seems like that one came up a lot. Well, so far in this series is, is we've been looking at the book of Revelation. We've been doing a lot of talking about what the book of this, this book of the Bible has to say about the past and the present. Uh, a lot of ancient history that at one time was current events for the people who were living in it. Remember, we talked the first week about this being written probably around 100 AD. Um, we talked about how a, a little bit of, of some of what happens back then was what we see happening in some ways today. But as we finish the series on Revelation, we would not be doing this book justice if we didn't take some time and talk about what it says about the future. Because Revelation does talk about the future, and we're going to get to that today. I'm excited to get to that with you. Uh, but in order to get there, I, I kind of want to go down a, a different road and talk about something that we don't often like to talk about, which is death. Uh, as I was thinking about this, I, I couldn't shake the fact many of us are deeply afraid of death. And I was trying to pinpoint when that first happened for me. Uh, I think it was probably at the funeral for my dad's father, my grandfather. Uh, my grandpa died when I was 10 years old. Uh, pretty sure that was the first funeral I had ever been to, the first wake. Uh, it was a Catholic funeral, and it had an open casket viewing beforehand. And, and many of you know at the wake, everybody walks up and they stand in front of the, the open casket uh, or take turns on their way out, you know, um, stopping and viewing the body. And uh, to this day, I'm not sure of what you're supposed to do in front of that casket. I saw people genuflect. Uh, I saw some people pray a prayer for my grandfather who had passed. It seemed like most people just looked at him. And, and I remember watching this as a kid, watching from the back, wondering why anyone would want to look at a lifeless body. I was a little freaked out by it, but as the viewing wound down, it was just our family left, we had to start to take our turns going up to the casket. Um, I was 10, my little brother was seven years old, and my dad just started to kind of herd us toward the coffin. And it seemed like every step I took, the more scared I got. It was the longest walk of my life, getting closer to my grandpa's body. And when we finally got up there, and I was just starting to get over my fear, my dad turned to me and my brother, a 10-year-old and a 7-year-old, and he said, kids, kiss your grandfather. <laughs> okay, I'm glad you reacted like that. It was not a request. It was, a, it was not a suggestion. We didn't really have an option with it. Um, my dad made us kiss our grandpa's lifeless body. Unbelievable. Now, I want to be clear. Um, I don't have a problem with people doing that sort of thing of their own choice, especially adults. I mean, if you want to do that, I get it. Uh, uh, but as little kids, it scarred us. We will never forget it or forgive him for it. Um, <laughs> In fact, uh, my, my brother is now a television writer in Southern California, and about 15 years ago, he worked on a, a television show called One Tree Hill as a producer, and there came an episode with a scene about an upcoming funeral that my brother helped develop, and uh, here, look at what my brother did on national TV. Grandfather died when I was around Jamie's age, and so my whole family's at the wake, and we're kneeling in front of the casket, and I'm really scared because there's this old dead guy just a few feet away from me anyway my mom's crying and uh my dad 
He says a couple words, and then he leans forward, and he kisses the corpse. And now I'm totally freaked out. And then he turns to me and he says, kiss your great-grandfather, son. He didn't make you. Yeah. It's my dad. Kiss the hundred-year-old dead guy in makeup. I, I like to think of that as my brother's revenge 25 years later. So dad, who is probably going to watch the service online, happy Father's Day from me and from my brother Terry. And uh, you scarred us, but it's a joke for us now. Anyway, uh, since then, I have been a little bit scared of death. And I, I think a lot of us are that way. And I, uh, here, I don't like thinking about it. And I, I, I don't like reading about it. And I certainly don't like speaking about it, which is unfortunate, because sometimes we need to. And the fact is, I need to get over it because there's nothing more relevant to every single one of us here than death. Every single one of us has a terminal disease. It is called mortality. Every single one of us has this. Um, the current death rate is 100%, in case you weren't aware of that. I cannot pick a subject on any topic that we have more in common than this one. Every person in this room will have to face it or deal with it. And part of why I need to get over my fear of death is because as a Jesus follower, somebody who, who really believes deeply in the truths presented about our, our world and about God that we see in the Bible, we have to talk about death if we're ever gonna get to a place where we can talk about life. In Revelation, when it talks about the future, it talks about life after death. Week one, I gave you three tools for reading Revelation responsibly. One was to know that it was about current events at the time that it was written that are now ancient events. One was to know that we have to understand some things from the Old Testament to be able to better understand Revelation. And the third was to know that much of this book was written in code and will not always understand all of it, uh, short of some code book being found by someone that makes it all make sense. And, and I have talked to so many of you who've told me that a lot of what we've been going over the previous two weeks is new news to you. Like you didn't know about Domitian and what he was doing to Christians like John, who we traditionally believe wrote this. We talked about that the first week. And you didn't know that a lot of it was written in code. Now that you do, it totally makes more sense. Uh, you didn't know much of it, it, it what, what it was talking about were things that were happening at the time that it was written. And, and what you've told me is that a lot of your life, you've been under the impression, Revelation is a book about predicting the future. Well, let me tell you today, Revelation does predict the future, or, or, or rather it gives a vision of it. But it's not the future like what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen in 100 years. It is the future what life after death holds for us. And I'll just say again, isn't that relevant to you? Even if you're like me, you don't like to think about death, wouldn't you agree that at least once in a while it's worth thinking about what is on the other side of it? We're going to do that. And we're going to start with me showing you some passages that have lots of imagery, and then I'm going to try to explain them as best I can, all right? We're going to read out of chapter 21, and let's remember, in this book, John is having a vision, or, or what seems like multiple visions sometimes, and the themes, by the way, that we've seen so far, they have a lot to do with God being in control of, of life in the midst of our circumstances. Even when it feels like everything's against us, God is in control. That's a theme of Revelation. 
Another one, Jesus' power is in his death on the cross for our sins. That's a big theme in Revelation. It calls him slain lamb again and again and again. And then last week, we said the theme was that the empire that is oppressing us will fall. That's what John was saying to the people of 100 AD. This Roman empire will fall, and the same holds true for today. All of our empires fall. And it's out of that messaging, John says this in verse 1. Take a look. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and he'll be their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And it says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Now there's more to that chapter. We're gonna read more in a little bit, but let's talk about what we're reading right here. John talks about a new heaven and a new earth. And maybe the best way for us to begin to understand that is to say that the Bible teaches us that we are two parts. Every single one of us is material and immaterial. We have a body and a soul. And what we read in the Bible is that when you die, your body dies, but not your soul. When you die, your body and your soul are separated. And your body goes into the grave or or wherever it is your family might scatter your ashes. I think I told a story recently about people scattering ashes on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. Your body might go to Disneyland, but your soul continues to live. And when we talk about life after death, what we're really talking about or we're asking is if your soul resided as part of your body while it was here on the earth, once your body's dead, where does your soul go? Where does your soul live on? Well, to be able to understand what John is saying in Revelation 21, what we just read, we kind of have to understand what people already believed at his time about death. Remember, to understand Revelation, we have to know some Old Testament. There's this moment we read about in Genesis 37, and Jacob is this man who hears that his son Joseph has been devoured by a wild animal, and uh, if you know the story of Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat, you know that he's not really dead. He's been thrown in a pit by his brothers, but they're trying to make it look like he's dead. And so they tell their father that he's been killed. Happy Father's Day. And Jacob is distraught. And the Bible says in Genesis 37, 35, all of his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but Jacob refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. Jacob says, don't comfort me. I want to mourn. I'm going to mourn until the day I die where I will go and meet my son in the grave. And what I I want to point out to you here is the Hebrew word that our Bibles have, have translated to the word grave is the Hebrew word sheol. God's people in the Old Testament believed sheol was a place that every soul went after their body had died. And you can see from the way that Jacob uses that word He believes Sheol is a place that when he dies, he's going to get to meet up with his son, Joseph. Now, there are over 60 instances of that word Sheol in the Old Testament, and they all kind of point to the same belief, a place where souls go to be together. 
But here is the weird thing about this word Sheol. You ready? Sometimes it's used referencing a good place you want to be, like here when he wants to meet up with his son. And sometimes when we read in the Old Testament, it seems like it's talking about someplace bad. Uh, You've heard of Job. Maybe you've read Job. We've taught on Job here before. In Job 24, Job is talking about how it seems like evil people get away with everything. Uh, and if you know the story of Job, you know he's, he's a good guy going through some pretty tough times. And in Job 24, verse 19, he says, As heat and drought snatch away the melted snow, so the grave, Sheol, snatches away those who have sinned. The womb forgets them, the worm feasts on them. Evil men are no longer remembered, but are broken like a tree. And, and get this, as Job comforts himself with the thought that evil people will someday get their just desserts, he talks about Sheol like it's a place you don't necessarily want to be. Again, Sheol is mentioned over 60 times in the Old Testament. A lot of times it talks about it like it's good. A lot of times it talks about it like it's bad. And you are smart people, so you're starting to ask, well, how could that be? Aren't those ideas contradictory? Well, not necessarily. You see, God's people here in the Old Testament, and and actually in Jesus' time as well, they very simply believed when your body died, there was a place that everyone, good people, bad people, believers, unbelievers, there was a place that everyone went right after they died, and this is the place they called Sheol. And they believed that there was a section of Sheol for good people and a section of Sheol for bad people. And while every soul went there together, their experiences in Sheol were very different. The best place that we see this explained is actually by Jesus himself. Um, In Luke 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he tells them this story. Uh, Verse 19, Jesus says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple, fine linen, lived in luxury every day, but at his gate was a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dog came and licked his sores. Verse 22 continues, the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now let's just stop there for a second. Abraham's side was a figure of speech. It was their way of saying heaven, the good section of Sheol. As Jesus tells the story, what he's saying is that Lazarus beggar, uh, that beggar uh, dies, Lazarus, his soul goes to be with Abraham's soul in the good section, the happy section, the comforting section of Sheol. Basically, Lazarus is in heaven. But we keep reading, end of verse 22, it says, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, He looked up and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now let's stop again just for a second. Some people believe that that word right there, Hades, was the Greek word for Sheol. Remember, the New Testament is written in Greek, not Hebrew. And so if that's the case, Hades is referring to the entire place. But there are other people who believe that Jesus uses the word Hades to describe the bad section, where the rich man's soul is in torment. Whatever way you think Jesus was using that word, Hades, in this instance, doesn't matter for the story because what we're reading here is the most complete description of Sheol that anybody in their culture had heard up to that point. Look at where Jesus goes with it. Lazarus in this heavenly side of Sheol, the rich man in this side full of torment. And in verse 24, it says, the rich man called to Abraham, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony 
in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, look at this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot, nor anyone can cross over from there to us. And what we see in this story is an understanding of Sheol that helps us put those pieces together. Jesus and the people in his world believe that when your body dies, your soul moves on to a place that everyone goes, but within that place, there is rest for your soul in comfort with Abraham, or there is torment. And Jesus explained there is a giant chasm between the two. And what we read in the Bible is that Sheol has a section of torment and a section of blessing and joy and comfort, a section that is paradise. I use the word paradise because some of you may remember as Jesus is on the cross, he turns to the thief next to him on the other cross and he says what? Today you will be with me in paradise. All right, now I want to ask you to do something because that's been a lot of information and you thought, when did I sign up for theology class? And uh, I want to make sure I'm not losing you. So would you turn to the person next to you, turn to them and share with them what you have always pictured a heavenly paradise to look like? Would you do that just for like 30 seconds? Even if they're a stranger, you can engage them and just say, this is what I always thought paradise was supposed to be. Good. All right. Now that you are thinking about that, here's what I should tell you. Different Bible scholars call the good section different things. Um, I already mentioned the most popular name for this, this good section, paradise, but Randy Alcorn, who's written a very popular and very thorough book about heaven, he calls this paradise section intermediate heaven. Now that phrase is kind of yuck. It's wordy and it's not a lot of fun and it doesn't, it doesn't work in songs, right? I got two tickets to intermediate heaven. No one's gonna write that. Uh, or, or Brian Adams, I'm finding it hard to believe we're in intermediate heaven. It just, it doesn't work. Uh, I don't recommend you walk around using that term, uh, but it's actually a really good name because it explains something a lot of people don't realize about this paradise section. You ready? It's temporary. See, the other thing that the Bible tells us about Sheol is it was never meant to be a permanent place for your soul. It's intermediate. It's a stopover. It's temporary. Sheol is a holding place for your soul while you wait for what is next, what is not temporary, what is eternal. Paradise, or intermediate heaven, is the heaven we go to while we're waiting for eternal heaven. And you ought to know that the section of torment that Jesus talks about in that Luke 16 passage is a temporary place too. It is where a soul would go while they're waiting to go to whatever is next for them. 
Now, I'll just be honest. Um, I grew up in church, and I heard about heaven and hell, and for most of my life, I had the idea when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell, and those places are incredibly far away from each other. One is way up in the sky. The other one is way down at the bottom of the earth. There's a dude with a pitchfork and horns coming out of his head there, but for the longest time, I had no idea that there was an intermediate heaven or paradise that we would spend time in while we waited to go to eternal heaven. And so when I finally learned this, my first question was, well, what does the Bible say about the eternal heaven and eternity for those not in heaven? Like, what are those eternal places all about? And this is what John is talking about when he writes about this vision of the future he has in Revelation 21. What he's talking about in what we read earlier is what happens after Sheol. Look again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The first heaven he's talking about there is the temporary one in Sheol. And the rest of this chapter describes this eternal heaven that all believers eventually go to, and it specifically uses a term here that tells us quite a bit. It calls this eternal thing, this future thing, after this intermediate heaven, it calls it a new earth. Now, how do you describe the new earth? I've heard it described so many ways. Pearly gates, streets of gold, um, Dave and Buster's on every corner. (laughs) Pick whatever you want it to be. Here's the most defining feature of it. Look at verse three. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And here, the Bible describes the eternal heaven as a new earth where God comes and dwells among his people. A mashup of the best of this place with the best of his place. Now, the natural question that comes up is when do you go from the intermediate heaven to the eternal heaven, the new earth, that whole thing? And I'll be honest, there are a couple of opinions on this, and in my mind, neither is perfectly clear. There are many who believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he went to Sheol, the intermediate place for souls, and while he was there, he conquered sin and death, three days later came back to life, and ultimately, after he spent 40 days walking around showing people that he was alive in the same body he had been crucified in, he took the souls from paradise, intermediate heaven with him as he ascended to eternal heaven. Basically, many biblical scholars would say that all of the souls that were in intermediate heaven, souls of God's people who had been in the temporary paradise, they moved on to eternal heaven 2,000 years ago when Jesus conquered death. Then there are some other pretty bright people who believe that intermediate heaven is still there. And then right now, if you die, you go to this temporary paradise where you see other friends and family members who've received God's grace, and you all have a blast waiting there together to go to eternal heaven. And people who believe this say that someday when Jesus returns, what he'll do is he'll take all of our souls with him, including the souls of people who are still alive on this earth, to the new heaven and to the new earth. Whichever way you go, no matter where you land on this, what is true is that Jesus will be there and we will be with him. Paul says this in Philippians 1, this is so good, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
And then the part we don't often read, I am torn between the two, for I desire to depart and be with Christ. So if that is what happens to the temporary heaven and those who are in it, what about those souls who are in the temporary bad section? And let me just say, this is the part of life after death that nobody likes talking about. In fact, I've been at Crosswinds for 15 years. Um, we often get criticized for not talking about the bad section enough. Uh, actually, just that I'm using that phrase, bad section, is bothering some of you. I'm going to explain why I'm using it in a second. But Revelation 21 tells us what happens with the souls who are in the temporary bad section. Um, in this vision, after God says to John, there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, he says, those who are victorious will inherit that new heaven and new earth, and I'll be their God, they'll be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Revelation 21 refers to something that we commonly call today hell. And it gives this list. I don't know how you feel when you see lists like this in the Bible. Um, sometimes, like in this one, I find myself in the list. <laughs> I mean, whether or not I've done all these others, I've certainly done the first one and the last one. I have been cowardly at moments in my life, and I have lied. And uh, if you say you haven't lied, you're lying, and you just added yourself to the list. <laughs> We're all on this list. So let me say, this isn't a list of the types of people who will find their souls in hell, because we've all done these. This is a list of who have not yet received forgiveness. And God's grace, those who've not yet received God's grace. Don't forget, John is writing to persecuted Christians, and he's telling them, today may be terrible. I know the stuff that's been happening to you. I'm on a prison island writing this letter, but your future holds a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with people. And what John is saying in this verse, those people who are doing terrible things to you, who do not know Jesus, and in fact persecute you who do, uh, the people who are stubborn and say, I don't need grace on my own authority, they will not be on the new earth with you. C.S. Lewis uh, wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than hell if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, especially of our own Lord's words. Nobody likes talking about hell. The problem is Jesus talked it more than, about it more than anyone in the Bible. Jesus. So let me, let me spend a few minutes explaining what Jesus said about hell. Okay, more often than not, when Jesus talked about it, he used a word, Gehenna. Gehenna. Some of you may have heard about this Gehenna. Unlike Sheol, uh, Sheol was a place that no living person had ever been, right? This word referred to a literal place just outside of Jerusalem. Uh, there was a valley just to the south of Jerusalem where at one time some people ha had started worshiping another god. And that worship, get this, it involved sacrificing children to this god, their own children, sacrificed by fire. Josiah, who was the king about 600 years before Jesus came on the scene, he put a stop to that. He ended that practice in that valley, but nobody ever wanted to go back to Gehenna for anything worthwhile ever again. And what it became for the people of Jerusalem was essentially a waste dump. We don't want to go out there. We're never going to do anything out there, so let's throw our garbage out there. 
They would run trenches out there to carry human waste to Gehenna. They would even, they would even take the bodies of prisoners who'd passed away and put them out there. And fire would continually burn the garbage and the debris and the bodies. Smoke would rise all day and night. Worms would feast around the clock like I would imagine they do at most dumps. This is what everyone knew of in Jesus' day as Gehenna. Now, 11 times Jesus uses this word to describe what comes after the temporary bad section of Sheol. Uh, a real well-known verse where he uses it, uh, check this out. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into Gehenna, is what the Greek says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And what's interesting, many Bibles choose the word hell which is an old English word we started using about 1,300 years ago to describe this place that Jesus keeps telling them is like the place they know called Gohanna, the horrific Gehenna, the horrific place none of them will ever go. Never wanted to go. Jesus was saying that in addition to this temporary place of torment we read about where souls go immediately after they die, he made it clear there's an eternal bad section in a place that you would never want to step foot, and Jesus uses the word Gehenna for that. He wanted his listeners to picture Gehenna. Now, there are some who believe that it will literally be just like that valley, burning and fire and smoke and worms. And there are others who say that Jesus just picked the worst picture his listeners could imagine, and he used that as a metaphor to describe some place you'll never want to spend eternity. Either way, here's what we know about it. It is outside the city, the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and the new earth. It is a place of desolation it is a place of desperation. It's a place of separation from God, and it is a place of torment. And according to the Bible, it is a place that is real. What the Bible tells us is that someday when Jesus returns, those souls who are in that temporary bad section, the not-so-great section of Sheol, they will be picked up and thrown into Gehenna. That's what it says. Now, at Crosswinds, one of the things we try to do is present multiple understandings within Christianity on what in the world the Bible is talking about. And I just shared one of them, eternal torment. But when it comes to the idea of hell or Gehenna, I think it's worth sharing with you another one. Uh, before I do, I feel like we need to come up for error. Uh, can, I, can I just try a cheesy bad joke? All right, a guy died. He went to the gates of heaven where he met St. Peter. And Peter said to him, I have looked at your book of life and you will be admitted to heaven under one condition. And the man said, yes, Peter, what is the one condition? And Peter said, you must spell the word love. And so the man spelled the word L-O-V-E and Peter admitted him to heaven. As the man walks in, Peter, Peter tells him, can you watch the gate until I return? I've got to go discuss something with God. And so the man agrees to watch the gate, and Peter reminds him, whoever comes, you've got to ask them to spell the word. After a little bit of time, the man's wife shows up at the gate. What are you doing here, he demands of her. She says, I got into a car accident on the way home from your funeral. I died. He says, all right, but before you enter heaven, you must spell a word. What word is that, she asked. Czechoslovakia, he said. <laughs> All right, it's not a good joke, but... Okay, 
Let me give you another way that some people understand this hell concept, some Christians understand. Rather than your soul going to Gehenna, where it is essentially uh, tormented, uh, tormented, <laughs> tormented forever and ever and ever, it goes to hell where it is annihilated and ceases to exist forever and ever and ever. It is eternally annihilated rather than eternally tortured. Uh, this is called annihilationism. Let me, let me show you where people find this in scripture. In Matthew 10, 28, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this really interesting thing. He's about to send them out to go do ministry and he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Oh, that's kind of nice. When you go out there and people threaten you, don't be afraid. They may kill your body, but they cannot touch your soul. But then he says, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Actually, Gehenna again. Wait a second, destroy soul in hell? I thought your soul stays in hell where it's tortured forever. Annihilationists would point to a passage like this and say that in hell, your soul doesn't get tormented forever, that in hell, it dies. It ceases to exist. Let me give you another one. Again, Jesus this time, John 3, 16. Um, some of you don't know any Bible verses, but you know this one real well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not, read this with me, perish, but have eternal life. Shall not perish, have eternal life. Those are meant to be contrasts with one another. The options, a soul ceases to exist, it perishes, or a soul has eternal life. And finally, those same people would point to Revelation 21, verse 8, where it says, this is the second death. You see this at the bottom of this verse, the second death. And they would say, that means that your soul dies, not just your body, but your soul ceases to exist. An annihilationist would say, while the permanent bad place is eternal, the fire is eternal. It will be there forever. The things that get put there or souls in this case will burn up into oblivion. They will perish. They will cease to exist, as the verses say. Annihilationists would also say that the idea of unending suffering is inconsistent with the love of God. The whole point of the New Testament is to tell us God is love. Yeah, he's angry at times. Yes, he demands justice, but his mercy endures forever. So how do you say that his mercy endures forever and then say that people will be tortured forever? The annihilationist combines God's mercy and his justice. Those two things, mercy and justice, unite. God forbids a person a place in heaven, and then he mercifully annihilates them so they don't endlessly endure what the first few says they will endure. Now, what do you, what do, you do with that? Which of those should we embrace? And I'll tell you, there's even more. We did a series back in 2018, you can go on YouTube and watch these if you want, called The Great Beyond, Four Views on Salvation. And there are views from Christians that even say all of the souls eventually go to heaven. You can watch that series and just hear and contrast those different views. I'll leave it to you. Lots of scholarship has gone into this question. Lots of disagreement among Christians on it. Now, my goal, our goal at Crosswinds, is never to scare anyone. It's not to preach a hellfire and brimstone message. So, so why are we bringing this up? Because when we talk about the future, this is what Revelation tells us. Whether or not you believe that Jesus literally meant a lake of fire with smoke and ash and worms experience, or he just meant something bad that we can't even imagine, or a place where souls cease to exist, here is what John wanted his readers to know and, and you to know. 
If you are a Christian, someone who has asked God to forgive you of your sins and accepted Christ's death on the cross as a substitute for anything that you would have to suffer, you committed to making God the leader of your life. If you are a Christian, then this life that you are living right now is the closest thing to hell that you will ever experience. Think back to the early Christians who read this letter and all that they were going through. This is as bad as it will ever get. Justice is coming for you. And it's still true today. Have you ever thought about that? For the person who has received God's grace, it does not get any worse than this. This life is as bad as it could possibly be. But if you're not, if you're somebody who has said, I don't need Jesus' death on the cross to cover my sin. I can just do it on my own. I don't need help from anybody for anything. I'm offended even by the claim that I need to be saved, especially from my sin. I'm offended that, that, that I can, uh, you don't think I can lead my own life and I need God to lead it for me. If you don't receive God's grace, then get this, your life right now is the closest thing to heaven you will ever experience. If you never choose to receive God's grace, this life you're living, this is as good as it could possibly ever get. And I'll just tell you, I like my life, but for me, this is not enough. My soul longs for a place where there are no more tears, and there is no shame, and no turmoil, and no atrocity, no injustice, a perfect place of happiness and joy. And I think deep down, we each long for that. Can I ask you, is your soul anticipating heaven like mine is? Because the one thing that, that, that every one of us has in our future, our futures all hold this, every one of us will die. The Bible tells us we don't, what we don't have in common is where our souls will go. And you need to know, God does not want anyone to have to suffer the consequences of their sin. It's why he sent Jesus for crying out loud but he gives everybody a choice, the most important choice you will ever make. And, and I wanna give you a chance to make that choice right now. I wanna ask you to pray with me. Would you bow your heads? We're gonna pray together before we go. And while our heads are bowed and we go before God, here's what I wanna do. If you have never made the choice to have Jesus make things right with you and God, I wanna give you the chance to do that right now in this prayer. I'm gonna pray, and what you can do is just repeat the words I pray to God right after me. You, you can own them as yours, pray them to God. And you don't have to say them out loud. We're not gonna do that, just in your own heart and in your head, you can make these words yours, all right? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I confess today that I am a sinner. I'm on the list. God, there is sin in me that I can't get rid of on my own, but Jesus died for my sin so that I could live in eternity with you, God. So God, I ask for forgiveness of all my sin. I ask you to become the leader of my life. Guide me from this point forward. Thank you for saving me and loving me, God. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time, you need to hear the Bible tells us that you, you can be sure 
of your salvation, that God's forgiveness has been given to you and, and you can be sure of an eternity with him and a bunch of other souls that I cannot wait to get to see. Um, and, and the seat pockets in front of you are, are some of these papers and, and they have some QR codes on them. There's two sides. The QR codes are on one side and, and one of them says, I have decided. And if you prayed that with me for the first time right now, we would love to be a part of helping you take some steps in your journey. And, and you can scan that code. It'll take you to a place where you can just put your email in and we'll start to send you some things that'll just kind of walk you through what it looks like to live into this eternal life that is waiting for you, that God's got for you and your soul. Before we go, I, I've asked Sophia to lead us in one last song. Um, we've been learning in this series that for the ancients, John was all about telling them that there is a king on a throne that is waiting for them and he will overcome what is oppressing you. And we just thought it is really important before we close this series that we recognize the goodness that God's got in store for us. So would you stand and sing this with Sophia before we go?